Hey, Steminists, it's Emlyn Gremlin here with a quick announcement. You are currently listening to an older episode of Stem Vital, one in which we had not quite figured out how to turn the microphone on. So if the audio quality bothers you, I urge you to skip ahead to episode 17, where we are oh so crisp and oh so clean. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it just worked out that way. Okay, here's the app. This is Stem Fatal here with a quick announcement before we start. We just want to give a, a quick shout out to our dear friend Emily Rees for guessing this week's Steminist of the Hour. <laughs> That's really all we have to say, so we'll get to the episode now. Love you, Emily. Yeah, you're the best. Bye. Bye. By circa 
What's wrong with you? I don't know. I'm too hyped up. We're all crazy. I'm too We're red. a little weird today. I'm it's too like, excited about this. I'm excited. It's hot. It's the end of the week. Yeah. Yeah. This 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 woman, she's got intrigue. Secrets. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Yes. Okay. I'm ready. The person we'll talk about today is Mary Golda Ross. All right. Have you ever heard of her? No. Okay. She's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna we're gonna go back in time. Right. Yeah. Ooh. Probably not gonna start when she's ninety six. No. Right. No. Be <laughs> short story. So Mary Golda Ross was born in a small town in Park Hill, Oklahoma, hmm. in nineteen oh eight. And Park Hill had been founded in eighteen thirty eight, and had been the center of Cher- Cherokee culture. Oh. So she's Cherokee. Yeah. And Mary Golda Ross's great-great-grandfather, John Ross, had been the longest-serving chief of the Cherokee Nation. Whoa. And as chief, he had fought hard against government control and the encroachment of white settlers while in the South. Um, But in the end, Chief John Ross uh, had been forced to lead his people along the march that then became known as the Trail of Tears. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, that so was her father. That was her great, great... Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Great, great grandfather. Okay, yeah. Duh. <laughs> um, and so he led them into Oklahoma, into uh, Park Hill, Oklahoma. Oh. As a child, Mary was sent to live with her grandparents in the Cherokee Nation's capital of, I think this is how you pronounce it, uh, Tahlequah? Tahlequah? Mm-hmm. Um, to attend school. And Tahlequah is situated at the foothills of the Ozark Mountains. So I looked it up, and there's lots of, like, rivers and... Yeah, it's really pretty. Yeah. I mean, it's not as nice as where they were, but... Oh, yeah. I, like, I went down this spiral, because there's not that much information on her, so I was like, well, I'll maybe talk a little bit about her grandfather and, like... Yeah. The Trail of Tears and, like, what he... All the cool stuff that he did to try to keep them in the south and, like, on the coast... And then it one got really depressing, and two got really long and complicated. And right. I was like, I guess I've spiraled out of control. <laughs> but there's, if you're interested, there's um, a really cool book about Andrew Jackson and oh. her great great grandfather, and how her great great grandfather pretty much fought against Andrew Jackson. Gosh. But it's supposed to be a really good book, and I'll I'll put it on the, I'll put it on the webs. Yeah. Cool. But if you want to go down that spiral with me. <laughs> The you can read that. Spiral, yeah. The sad spiral. That's what the pit is. Yeah, true. Yeah, okay. So, as a child, Mary was sent to live with her grandparents, as I said, in Tahlequah. And uh, Mary was brought up in the Cherokee tradition of equal education for boys and girls. Yay. And was primarily interested in math and science. Aww. And in an interview with Laurel Shepard, uh, Mary, when she was older, said, Math was more fun than anything else. It was always a game to me. I was the only female in my class. I sat on my on one side of the room and the guys on the other side of the room. I guess oh. they didn't want to associate with me. Oh. But I could hold my own with them and sometimes did better. Yeah. Yeah. That's cute. Yeah. Yeah, how much of that is boys thinking girls have cooties at that time? And yeah. how much of it is Like were did probably they mostly have to sit on separate sides of the room or was that just like We'll never know. Okay. Yeah. We'll know. never know. So, after graduating high school at age 16, uh, Ross attended Northeastern State Teachers College in Tahlequah. 
And Marie said of that time, when I went to the college to enroll, they asked me what I wanted to do with my major subject. I said, what's a major subject? The person finally said, what did you have the most fun with when you were in high school? It was clearly math. Yeah. And so Mary graduated college with a bachelor's in math, mathematics, in 1928 at age 20. At the time, less than 2% of women achieved a bachelor's. Then, for more than nine years, she taught mathematics and sciences in public schools in Oklahoma. Do you have any idea where, what she's going to end up doing? Do you know where we're going? She is going to uh, invent the iPhone. How could you have guessed it? <laughs> How did you know? It was actually her, not Steve Jobs. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So in 1937, at age 29, Ross began to ask herself if she was going to stay in Oklahoma forever or go out and see the world. Yeah. And so she took a civil service exam and was hired as a statistical clerk for the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs in D.C. Wow. But when she got there, a Cherokee official noticed Ross and how... Uh, her background was in education and math, yeah. and they thought she would be wasted as the cl- being a clerk at the main office. So they sent her to Santa Fe, New Mexico, to work as the girls' advisor at the School of American Indian Artists, oh. which is now known as the Institute of American Indian Art. Oh. Uh, and while she was working as the advisor there, during the summers, Ross pursued her, math- her master's in mathematics at Colorado State Teachers College, which is now... University of Col- of University of Northern Colorado at Greenlee now. Nope. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was trying to add now to part of that. Univer- it's supposed to be now called University oh. of Northern Colorado at Greenlee. And I said University of Northern Colorado at Greenlee now. Yeah, anyways. During this time, she also took every astronomy course she could and became very interested in space. Oh, space. Space, space, space. In the early half of World War II, the avian industry exploded. Not literally, but it got really big. Avian? (laughs) Aviation, sorry. (laughs) That was like the bird industry. (laughs) People like, need their oh, poultry. Here I was thinking she was going to go into space, but actually she's just going to start studying birds. <laughs> well, the avian industry isn't that when pa- so passenger pi- isn't that when passenger pin- pigeons just got like shot to shit? Yeah, yeah. So I guess the avian industry also exploded, literally. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, they're probably of the same like origin right like aviation and yeah avi- it's like all flying. flying yeah something yeah and so at this time lockheed corporation was an american astrospace company that made the only american fighter aircraft throughout world war ii wow have you heard of lockheed yeah it's like up in your your hizzo okay so this fighter plane was known as the p-38 lightning flighter fighter Ooh. plane fighter plane Are you okay? <laughs> I am. So Ross was hired by Lockheed Corporation in 1942 as a mathematician. Oh, cool! And was assigned to work with engineers on the effects that pressure had on the P-38 lightning. Lightning. (laughs) I can't say it. Fuck. Uh, On the P-38 lightning fighter plane. That's hard. Fire plane. 
Fighter plane. Fighter plane. Fighter plane. <laughs> oh my god. Should we just start over? <laughs> the whole thing. Oh, uh, okay. It's also because it's like the avian industry exploded <laughs> and now she's working on a fire plane. <laughs> It's okay, it's okay. I, I know what you're saying. <laughs> Remember in our first episode when I talk about my lisp? Oh, yeah. I think my nervousness is, like, increasing. Um, oh, okay. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. So, Ross was hired by Lockheed Corporation in 1942 as a mathematician and was assigned to work with engineers on the effects the pressure had on the P-38 as it neared the sound barrier. <laughs> Whoa, that's so, pretty cool. So this plane was the first to go more than 400 miles per hour. Whoa, oh my gosh. Which is, I guess, near the sound barrier? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I wouldn't know. Yeah. But I believe it. And <laughs> Ross said of that time that often at night there were four of us working until 11 p.m. We were taking the theoretical and making it real. Whoa. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. cool. And this P-38 plane was used for night fighting level bombing, photo reconnaissance, dive bombing, pathfinding for bombers, and uh, pathfinding for evacuation missions. So it was very, very important for World War II. And all told, Lockheed produced roughly 9,000 P-38 lightning fighter planes during World War II. Good job, good job. Thanks. (laughs) That's amazing. Wow. So after the war... Lockheed Corporation sent Ross to the University of California at Los Angeles to get a professional degree in engineering. I don't know what this professional degree is. Is it a PhD? Is it a certificate? Is it another master's? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't figure it out. That's weird. Anyway, so it's a professional degree of some type. (laughs) Uh, And he or she studied mathematics relating to engineering aeronautics, mission mechanics, and celestial mechanics. Whoa. Yeah. She's a smart lady. Yeah. And with these new skills, Ross was perfectly positioned to be key in the space race and in Cold War defense. <gasps> yeah, cool. Oh, such so an exciting like time. So she's like a behind-the-scenes of, um, not quite what Sally Ride, like not. Yeah. But. She was like engineering the ships probably that all of the astronauts would be using or taking to space. Or the technology. Yeah. Okay, so in 1952, Ross became the only female and only Native American of 40 engineers that were part of a secret space engineering think tank. (gasps) Oh my god, (laughs) everything about that is awesome. It's secret, it's space engineering, and it's a think tank. it's a good combo. (laughs) And it's known as Skunk Works. Ugh. So skunk- they could have come up with such a better name. <laughs> well, it was it's nicknamed secret. Skunk Works, and then oh. that's kind of what it became known as. Oh, cool. So Skunk Works got its name from the comic strip Little Abner. Oh, I've heard of that, but I've never read it. Yeah, I think it ended in like the 80s or the 70s, yeah. but it went for like 40 years, like the 30s to the 70s. Huh. But apparently, I've also not looked at Little Abner, but in Little Abner... Skunk Works was a dilapidated factory which caused the death of many locals due to the toxic fumes it produced by grinding and heating up dead skunks and old shoes and turning them into maybe moonshine. This is a comic? Uh Like, in a newspaper? It's supposed to be like hillbilly. It's just about hillbillies. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's so dark. Yeah. It's very strange. <laughs> this is like a, like in the newspaper, not yeah. like comic books. Yeah, I wow. think so. Such a different time. <laughs> it's like old movies from that, like children's movies from that time. You're like, this is so dark. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so according to the memoir of the head of Skunk Works, Ben Rich, which is a fitting name because I'm sure he made a lot of money. Yeah. Ben Rich. He Ben Rich. Um, the original facility was next to a terrible smelling plastics factory. Oh. And because of the secrecy of the project and the smell, Irv Culver, an engineer at Skunk Works, started calling the facility Skunk Works. Got it. Yeah. That's and then funny. it just stuck. Cool. So while part of Skunk Works... Ross was highly regarded by her co-workers as they worked together on defensive systems and space exploration. Cool. And we know little about the specifics of her work during this time as much of it remains classified to this day. Oh my gosh, that's kind of scary. So like, this episode's a little short because it's classified. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I can't get into many details because I don't know. Yeah. And no one knows. That's okay. Yeah. But, so they were making, like, fighter planes, basically? Yeah. Okay. So, in 1955, Skunk Works received a contract from the CIA to build a, build a spy plane known as the U-2, also known as Dragon Lady. Wait, is U-2 named after that plane? I don't plane? think so. I oh. looked this up. <laughs> I looked this up. Apparently, U-2, they had six different names that they were thinking of, and they all hated U2 least. Oh. Why they named it U2, I don't know. Huh. But it's not, it's not a great... U2 sucks. Anyways. <gasps> Do you ever listen... You've never listened to you talking to me? No. It's a podcast. It's funny. Is it just about U2? It is. It's Scott Ackerman and Adam Scott mm-hmm. talk about U2 because it's their favorite band. Oh, God. <laughs> But it's, I don't know, like, they go through all of their albums, and they even end up interviewing you two. But it's pretty funny. It's not, like, super detailed about you two. I gotcha. Sometimes it is, but... Nobody at me if they like you two. I don't care. Oh. (laughs) I mean, I don't love you two. Yeah. They're fine. I love you, too. I love you, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Anyways, so... Uh, Skunk Works received a contract from the CIA to build this U-2 spy plane in order to fly over the Soviet Union and take photographs of areas of interest, which I would guess be, like, nuclear test facilities at that time or, like, other things. Yeah. Cold War. Deep, deep Cold War. Who knows? Everything, maybe. And then... You've just seen, like, what spaceships they're building. Yeah. Isn't that half of it? Just, yeah. like, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, the Cold War. Yeah. We're still in it. I guess, yeah. Just, I mean, just we're gotten not, weird. Like, it's gotten weirder. as many things. We just have... Yeah, all the things. innovation of... <laughs> of the Cold, <laughs> the Cold War. War has gone away, <laughs> and now we just have hostilities with Russia. Yeah. <laughs> It's less uh, fun now. Yeah. <laughs> but less uh, diving under your desk. Right. Waiting for the nuclear... Op- well, actually... I don't know. I think we're all still waiting. It's someday, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. This, this is the pit I was talking about at the beginning yeah, of the episode. Yeah, right. We do... <laughs> so, in 1960, they stopped flying the U-2s over Russia after a pilot, Francis Gary Powers, was shot down while flying over Russia. 
Love. I'm guessing by Russia. Yeah. But. Skunk Works during this time also made the SR-71 Blackbird. Ooh. Which was so a... So it is an avian yeah. revolution. Indeed. Which was a sleek, stealthy Air Force spy plane that could travel at three times the speed of sound. Oh my god. Roughly 2,000 miles per hour. How... Okay, wait. How do you spy when you're moving that fast? Or or you're not moving that fast as you spy? You just go quick in, spy, quick out. I mean, I don't know how fast their cameras are. But I'm imagining they're taking, like, radar sonar. Like, they're yeah. beaming stuff down to kind of take uh, aerial photographs. Okay. So I don't know how slow you have to go. They probably slowed down a little, yeah. maybe? I don't know. This blackbird also flew at altitudes above 75,000 feet. So it was oh super high and super fast so that Sounds nothing could so shoot fun. them down. So they would just, like, take some pictures and then <laughs> whoop, whoop. Um, That's cool. Yeah. Those are some of the specifics that we know that she worked on or that at least Skunk Works worked on. Yeah. Um, but we also know that she worked on low-altitude missile defense systems, intermediate-range ballistic missile systems, Intercontinental ballistic missile systems, near-Earth satellites, underwater launched intermediate-range ballistic missile systems. Oh my god! Which I guess just means you shoot them from under the water. Yeah, so like, like maybe from a sub. yeah. Additionally, she worked on determining launch characteristics and duration of flyby missions to Mars and Venus for the early manned planetary interplanetary round trip expedition, Whoa. known as Empire. <laughs> Uh, that's mm. pre-Star Wars, right? Cause, yeah, yeah, sorry. When is this Star Wars? 70s or something? Okay, yeah, so this is yeah. 60s. Okay, so, so yeah, she did a lot. We don't know specifics, but, like, these are all the things she worked yeah, on at Skunk Works. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. Ross was a private person and did not seek recognition for her work, and at one point when nominated for a Society of Women Engineers Annual Award, she wrote to the Society saying, All my interplanetary work was done as a group effort so I just can't claim that I have any contribution as an individual. Thanks anyways, and best regards, Mary. <laughs> That's yeah. so weird. <laughs> so, uh, so humble. Yeah, but Ross was absorbed in her work, and she found it necessary and important. Aww. And Ross, who had never seen a rocket blast off, believed that women could make wonderful astronauts. Uh, she said, but I'd rather stay down here and analyze the data. Aw, That's cool. <laughs> And, of course, she did receive many awards during her lifetime, nonetheless. Um, but she just, she didn't really care that much. <laughs> and I forgot to write them down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in 1973, Ross retired and lived in Los Altos, California. And one of her regrets was having been away from her Indian people for so long. Oh. And so, after retiring, she turned her attention to getting young women and Native Americans to become engineers... Wow. By supporting the American Indians in Science and Engineering Society and the Council of Energy Resource Tribes. Cool. And Kara Cowan Watts, a fellow engineer and tribal counselor, said of Ross, just think, a Cherokee woman from Park Hill, Oklahoma, helped put an American on the moon. Uh, and then in 2004, the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. opened on September 21st. And at the age of 96, Ross stepped out of her electric wheelchair for the first time wearing a traditional Cherokee dress of green calico 
and this dress was made by her niece. And donned in her traditional attire, she participated in the opening ceremonies of the museum. Wow. And Mary Golda Ross died in April 29, 2008, just three months before her 100th birthday. Oh my gosh. And she left $400,000 to the museum as part of the endowment. Oh my god. And as her niece said... She was a mathematician, and she knew if you gave a large scholarship, it would be gone in a year. But if you gave to an endowment, the principal would continue to give. Aww. What did she do, like, after Skunk Works? Did she go back to work with Lockheed Martin? I think she was at Skunk Works until oh, she retired. Oh, wow. Okay. Skunk Works is still... It still exists. I think or? Skunk Works is still a secret think tank. Whoa. Yeah. That's so crazy. Yeah. I don't know why it has to be so secret. So I read something where one of the people who worked there said that it takes like one-tenth of the time to counteract a new innovation than it does to create that new innovation. Oh, gotcha. So it's really easy once, if that gets out, to find something to like combat your covert stealth technology or whatnot. Interesting. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, wow. she's awesome. It does seem like so much of her life was so secret. Yeah. Hidden. Yeah. And she was on um, What's My Line? Is that what the show's called? Uh, whose Line Is It Anyway? No, no. It's I think it's called What's My Line. Yeah, it was a panel game show from the 50s, in the 50s and 60s, where there would be, like, I think celebrities would come on, and then there would be somebody else who would come on, and you have to guess their occupation. Oh. So she was on it, and it took them a... They were very surprised of what her occupation was. Whoa. Yeah. That's kind of... I'm sure that could have been extremely offensive. Yeah. One of the people <laughs> in it... I, I watched it. And one of the people... They found out that she worked in aircraft. Yeah. Uh, and fighter, like, planes and stuff. Yeah. And the guy was like, surely you don't fly those. Oh. <laughs> I was like... Because she's a woman. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's like... I mean, no, I, I build shock. them, motherfucker, yeah. but, um, but yeah. Yeah, it seems like a, I don't think you could get away, because it's just like you look at them, and then you try to guess their occupation and ask them questions, That's but like, so it's so much, offensive. yeah, but it's so much based on gender, race. I feel like it was just a lot of white people. Guessing what other people Other white people uh, do. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, like, I guess it's less offensive, yeah. because... You're not basing it on race, but it's just, I think there was, it was ignoring race entirely. That's crazy. Sounds great. (laughs) Let's bring it back. Oh, bad, bad idea. Yeah, no. (laughs) Okay. All right, cool. Great. That was awesome. I love her. All right, we're back for the women who work. Work, work, (laughs) work. What's going on? Um, yeah, shout outs to badass women making science history today. (laughs) Indeed. Okay, so shout out one. I'm going to try my best not to butcher this. You can do it. Claw your way out of the pit. It seems really cool, and um, I just hope that I I can state the coolness effect. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so shout out one goes to Princeton seismologist. Ooh. Um... Jessica Irving and her colleagues San Qatar and Vadran Lekic. Le- sorry. 
<laughs> this week published new models for estimating parameters of the Earth's outer core. And they published in the journal Science Advances. So, like, you know, we have our crust. We're on that. Yeah. Then there's the mantle. Yes. Then there is the outer core, which yes. is like a liquid layer that surrounds the inner core of the Earth. Yeah, it's like, like the like Ben and Jerry's molten core ice cream. What? Yeah, it's like I want just caramel right in the middle. No. Yeah. <gasps> that sounds so good. Yeah. Podcast canceled. I need to see. <laughs> <laughs> the container is the crust, the ice cream is the mantle, and then you get to the core. Yeah. Well, is there something within the caramel? Because our inner core is solid. We could stick something in there. All right. Okay, cool. <laughs> like a little Hershey kiss. Yeah, a little Hershey yeah. kiss. <laughs> <laughs> <It's true. laughs> so hyper. <laughs> so crazy. <sighs> okay, wait. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they published a new model. So, like, we can't measure things about the core ourselves. The, in, the inner core, the Hershey's kiss? The inner core or the outer core. Oh, okay. Because it's so far away. Yeah. Wait, wait. So I think the diameter of the inner core is 1,200 kilometers, which is 760 miles. Okay. And then the outer core is 2,400 kilometers, which is 1,500 miles. And then the mantle is like another Texas. Yeah. And then we have our crust, which is just puny compared yeah. to the rest. So we got like two so, two U.S.s yeah. to the inner. Yeah, basically. Okay. So we can't like get there to actually measure what's in the outer or inner core. Yeah. Like we can't reach it. So geologists and earth scientists have to use like other ways to estimate what it looks like and like what it's made of and stuff. And so they use um, seismology, which is the study of basically like waves and vibrations in the earth usually due to earthquakes okay okay so their study essentially just made a new model called the elastic parameters of the outer core and it updates previous models that describe how various properties of earth vary with depth to form the new model they use data from what are called normal modes to basically test their model and figure out like what the best model would be for measuring things about the outer core. In normal modes are standing waves that can be measured after the largest earthquakes that are over 7.5 magnitude. And these are earthquakes or waves that move the whole earth. Oh god. Isn't that crazy? I didn't even know that existed. Like when was the last time we had a 7.5? February there was a 7.5 magnitude earthquake in Papua New Guinea. Yeah. These waves, like, just pro provide new information than the previous model, which used, like, surface waves okay. um, to test their model, basically. This is what it's <laughs> about as best as I can explain this. You're doing so good. Um, and so their model is improved because it's simpler than previous models. And got rid of, like, controversial elements of that model. Like, people had found things about... There's this layer between the mantle and the outer core mm -hmm. that was kind of, like, screwing up the previous model. Okay. Because people don't know enough about it. 
And this new model is like, you don't really have to take that into account. Okay. And so they were able to figure that out. And now we can learn more about our outer core. Yeah. <laughs> through their model. So Love yeah, it. shout out goes to them. Okay. I gotta find out more about my outer core. Yeah. I gotta my do something about my all of my core. <laughs> it's just a liquid caramel yeah. center. <laughs> Full of beer and coffee. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Shout out to this one I can explain a little bit better. I love it. It goes to Stav Atier and Melissa Ferguson from Cornell, who published a series of eight studies in a paper this week in PNAS, showing that female professionals are more often referred to by their first name oh, yeah, I've than seen male this. professionals, yeah. and this can be detrimental to their career success because they're judged to be less powerful or eminent. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I'd seen this headline a bunch of places and then I went to call for a new doctor and like I was trying to figure out who to call and they had like the options menu yeah and they're like if you are interested in talking to Dr. Brown, Dr. Jones or Melissa Barfield or and they and they did this like four times so there's like four different offices it could be that that person is the secretary yeah but I don't think so so That's each time weird. it was like doctor, well, doctor, doctor, yeah. or first name female. Right. Who's probably also a fucking doctor. I mean, it's kind of like when Bill Clinton was running for president, he on signs it would probably say Clinton. But mm-hmm. when Hillary was running for president on every on all of her posters, it said Hillary. Yeah, I wonder. I, I mean, that that one could differentiate, yeah. and but, they like took that into account yeah. in their study, but. But yeah. So here's like a couple of the smaller studies included in this cool. paper. And they're, they're just like really interesting. Yeah. And it made me even think about how I like perceive names mm-hmm. and use names and telling stories and stuff. Yeah. Okay. So one study they did, they analyzed almost 5,000 online student reviews uh, on Rate My Professor um, mm-hmm. across disciplines and found that students were... more likely to use surnames with male professors and female professors. So that's just kind of like odd to begin with. Then they looked at transcripts of over 300 U.S. political radio show segments, which included like 9,000 mentions of a name or something, and found that speakers and guests were two times more likely to use a man's surname and a woman's first name. Mm -hmm. So this is just setting like... Uh, the precedent that people tend to use male surnames more than female surnames when describing them. They also gave volunteers a list of famous people, including like Jane Austen and Joe Biden and a bunch of other people, and asked them to describe how they would refer to those individuals. Would they use their whole name, their first name, or their surname? And they found that people were 75% more likely to report using a surname when referring to male than female Mm. figures. I mean, so far, not, I guess it's just like, huh, that's weird. Yeah. And then in another one, um, they asked a lot of volunteers, they were given identical bullet points about the work of a fictional chemist, things like this, chemist is an x-ray crystallographer from the these time points whatever 
And some of the volunteers were giving these bullet points where they named the scientist Dolores Burson. And others, the sheet of paper was describing a person named Douglas Burson. And they were asked to rewrite the information in full sentences. And participants were randomly assigned to imagine that they were either lecturing about the scientist or telling a friend about the scientist in casual conversation. And participants writing about the male scientists were more than four times as likely to refer to him by surname mm. than participants writing about the female scientists. It's just really like, why? I feel like yeah. from what I hear with people, especially when they are like teaching assistants, like females also hear a lot more about people's like personal problems yeah. than they one want just, to like, and two. Friendlier, so you feel more And even if they're not friendlier, I think they're perceived as friendlier. True. And I think you're they're perceived as like Unless they're perceived as a bitch. Yes. <laughs> it's true. Until then the two. Yeah. So they presented participants with two pairs of fictional one paragraph research proposals. Mm-hmm. One proposal referred to the researcher by surname, and the other referred to the researcher by full name, and they used gender-neutral names. Okay. So this is just to test the effects of using a surname Mm -hmm. versus a full name. Yeah. And researchers who were referred to by surname were selected as better known and more eminent. Mm. So mean, like, they're more respected in their field. Yeah. Just because they didn't use the full name. That's so weird. So saying like n- like Mister, for or is it Doctor? Um, Do you know? Oh, I would I would think that they would either use Professor or Doctor okay. since it's a research yeah. proposal. Okay. But I would also guess even with the full name, they might say Doctor. Yeah. Like what's a gender neutral name? Like Doctor Chris Emmett. That's not a girl's name. E- Emlyn's a boy's name. Is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, you're the only Emlyn I've ever met. There are more of us. Um, for some reason, like, only using the surname seems to be associated with eminence in yeah. the field. Like, just saying, like, Dr. Gregory yeah. instead of, like, Dr. Joe Gregory. Yeah. If you say Dr. Gregory, then you're assuming you're not going to confuse this with any other Gregory because this is, like... Mm, the one. The one. Yeah, the Gregory. That's a good point. Yeah. And then they did a similar test, but instead of a research proposal, they were submitting something to basically get a career award mm-hmm. or like showing participants applications for an award, like a fictitious NSF career award. And participants basically said that the surname only ones were more deserving of the award mm. and they would allocate more funding to that individual. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Just based on name alone. Yeah. Yeah. Or just like the amount of name you give. Yeah. 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 So they did these like separate studies to see the consequences of like basically referring to women by first name only or mm-hmm. first and last. Name. And obviously there's been other studies that show like when you, women put their names on applications or something like first names they can be discriminated against Mm. and names go a long way and like anything applications uh grant proposals etc so it has like pretty crazy implications for being a female scientist so next week we're gonna introduce ourselves as Dr. Recitation. No, no, we're not that. That's a lie. Not doctors yet. Miss. Miss, I guess. 
But that yeah, doesn't. I don't. I hate Miz. I don't like and any Miz. Of them. That's uh, why the only reason I'm getting PhD my candidate. Rest yeah, here. the only reason I'm getting my PhD is so that I can have another like name or like uh-huh. title that's not Miss or Mrs. Because I don't like yeah. those. Yeah, but it's also like I do think I don't know. Even in some of our stories, that but I also don't want to stop using like female names. I feel like people just need to stop discriminating against female names. Yeah. Right. Yeah, especially I found that that I've been a little more conscious when I've been writing the stories. Yeah. But it seems weird when you're talking about a specific person and like the story is about them to yeah. only call them like like ride doctor or, like or, Ross or yeah. Or and sometimes and I, and I think if you're giving enough credit to somebody that you're writing a whole story about them, then maybe it do, like doesn't yeah. matter. I don't know. Yeah. In like obituaries and biographies mm-hmm. I've read, I've definitely seen that people refer to the scientists we're talking about as like Dr. Ride or something. Mm-hmm. But I also, I don't know, but it's also like, don't they're people too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't, it's weird. I wish... There weren't so many implicit biases that yeah. we have to overcome, yeah. but I guess, yeah. Anyway, good to know about. For sure, for sure. So, yeah, that's shout-out number two. Awesome. Sabatier Melissa Ferguson. I love it. Yeah. That's great. Cool. Yeah. Anything else for this week, please? Please, rate us on <laughs> iTunes. Talk to us. We're just, we need communication. Yeah, we put, <laughs> we put out questions. They're for you. <laughs> And if you like the podcast, please subscribe and review. Yeah. Uh, You can still follow us, as always, on Stemfatal Pod on Twitter and Stemfatal Pod on Facebook. And you can email us at stemfatalpod at (laughs) gmail.com. So many different resources to interact with us. We're just sitting around waiting. Yeah, we're not (laughs) writing our dissertations or doing research. We're just waiting waiting to talk to you. Waiting to talk to you. We got really chill. Like, we were so hyper. I know. We were like, hey, guys. Hey, guys. Please. <laughs> hang out. Yeah. Thank you to Artichoke for making our <laughs> theme music called Mary Annie. Yeah. And to Caitlin Friesen for making our cover art. Woo-woo. And I think that is... Is that it? Yeah. Y'all better go stimulate yourselves. <laughs> yeah. Stimulator. Bye. Bye. Stimulate yourself tonight. Circa 80